Welcome to another episode of Talking Payroll. My name is Tracy Angwin. In this episode, I speak with Maria Nikolatatos, our Chief Knowledge Officer at Australian Payroll Association. You know, I thank my lucky stars that I met Maria almost eight years ago now. She's the heart and soul of our knowledge at Australian Payroll Association. She's got almost an encyclopedic knowledge of how state and federal legislation works in relation to the payroll function. And she spends most of her time helping our members proactively uh, avoid costly mistakes in payroll and sometimes helping them fix ones that they've, uh, they've got into. If you've seen Maria present at a payroll conference or attended any training run by her, you'll know she's highly entertaining. She's got an enthusiasm about payroll and employment that's very hard to miss, and this is definitely apparent in this conversation. I hope you enjoy Maria and I talking payroll. Maria Nikolatatos, how has it taken me this long to get you on the podcast? Oh, because we're both so busy. It's payroll. There's no other answer. We both do payroll. But there's no time to do anything else. Well, that is true. That is true. Hey, look, you're you're a really well-known person now in the the Australian payroll industry. But tell me, how did you get into payroll? Oh, how does anyone really get into payroll? Can you imagine at school when everyone, you know, in year nine and ten when they say, what would you like to do for work experience? My whole life, I've never seen anyone put their hand up and say, I love to do payroll. No, me neither. Yeah, people just fall into it. So how did I fall into it? I was working for um, the holding company for Radio 2UE at the time that I was studying, and part of my role was to do payroll tax returns, superannuation. So I actually started more on the accounting side and not actually running the payroll. Then from the accounting side, lodging all the returns and and all that sort of data, I fell into the actual processing side of things. Not by choice, but I'm glad I did because I thoroughly enjoy it. Most times, most times, of course. Yeah, okay. So you called me when I advertised your role online and and the passion for payroll that you had in your voice was incredible. You told me that you were born for this role and, to be honest, I think you were right. Now you work with our members to provide them with the knowledge they need for their payroll roles. You train our clients. You do consulting work when employers think there might be compliance issues with their payroll. What are the most common issues that you see employers getting wrong in payroll? Uh, the, the The two main topics that are consistently, from an audit perspective, consistently inaccurate, a long service leave and probably superannuation. So the complexity of those two is incredible. Even when you ask the governing bodies who wrote those pieces of legislation, they're also rather hesitant to respond with a definitive answer because there's so much there's so much leeway in the interpretation of what's been stated in the legislation. Why why do I, why am I passionate for it? You know those kids that say. They ask you a question and the child says, yeah, but why, but why, but why? <laughs> so when it, comes to, when it comes to payroll, you ask me a question, the likelihood is that I'm going to have to ask you 42 questions back to get to the correct answer. Yeah, right. I mean, I suppose that's the, that's the skill that you have, right, that someone like me doesn't have because I want things to be black and white. But people think payroll is black and white. But it's actually not. It's actually the third or the fourth or the fifth question that you might have to ask that actually informs your answer, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So a simple question like, 
how, how does long service leave accrue? The first response was it will be in which state or territory? Are they full-time, part-time? What's the accrual rate, rate might be the same? The payment rate is different. So there's there's so many responses to one particular question. And and I love the fact, well, do I love the fact? I'm good. I believe that I'm good at the fact of at asking you 10 questions for every one that you ask me. So I have to get to the bottom of it. I have to know every piece, every little detail. Yeah, right. It's. I, I think that's really an interesting um, observation actually because oftentimes I think when people call us, they don't realise that we're going to be asking more questions before, you know, before we give them an answer. I think that's um, – that's that's really interesting. I mean, we see a lot of underpayments in the press. I mean, the, particularly that you know the Fairfax Press love a good underpayment uh, employer ripping off employee type of story. Um, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. I mean, we've seen Super Retail Group in the press recently. We saw Lush last year. There's John Sadler Swimlands. There's Seven Eleven. Even the government funded ABC underpaying millions of dollars to their employees. So everyone you know, has the potential of getting it wrong. What's causing these companies to get it so wrong? Um, again, what do I believe it, it, it's causing these errors? For, certainly for those who are unintentionally making these errors, for, for, the, for errors, those that are intentionally making them. Yeah, let's let's assume that all of those employers were unintentionally making those errors, which is as far as I, as far as we're aware, we, we've worked with a lot of those employers. Is by is the case. They none of those were other than Seven Eleven. None of those were intentionally underpaying their staff. We should make that quite clear. You're right. Yeah, I thoroughly believe ninety percent, ninety to ninety five percent would be unintentional. Why is it's because what is payroll? And those who believe that it's a press of a button. That, that comment actually presses my buttons, but not in a good way. What is it? It's taking the words written in an award or a piece of legislation and turning them into numbers and accurately doing that. And the way to interpret legislation might be different for you, different for me, different for someone else. So you might read exactly the same sentence in an award or an agreement or in an ATO piece of legislation, and you might say, oh, that's what I think it is. I'll, I'll think, oh, no, that's not how I read it at all. When you pose the question to the authorities that wrote the legislation, they sometimes struggle with it as well. So why, why do these underpayments occur? Possibly a lack of understanding of what the, what the award or the, the terms and conditions of employment are, and that is by no fault by no means the fault of the person reading the legislation, it's the complexity in which it's written and it's subject to interpretation in a number of ways. So why are they happening? Because someone might read a particular piece of legislation and interpret it in a particular way and then the governing body says, no, 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 that's not what I mean. The other reason, and I hate to say it, is because for a long, 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 long time, Tracy, and you know this, there were no qualifications in payroll. So how people were taught was by parrot fashion. Uh, the the um, payroll manager or someone would resign, they would bring someone in and this new person would be trained up. They wouldn't be taught the rules and regulations. They'd just be shown how to do it. Those That how to do it changes how to do what, how payroll and what was superable and what wasn't back in 2001 is very different to what it is now. So because there were no legislations and there were no bodies to train people, 
the way payroll was often taught and learned was parrot fashion and it's not accurate. No, a lot of people would know where to find information or didn't know how to interpret it or who to contact with regards to interpretation and processing and the, and the desired and accurate outcome. Yeah, it's a really good point. That whole set and forget mentality around payroll, whether it's to do with training your staff or how you set up your system, I think is a huge risk. You know, people who haven't actually looked into their um, their payroll operations for a number of years and done, you know, either a compliance audit or a process audit, I think oftentimes when we do those things, employers are quite surprised at what we find. Uh, definitely. And, again, is that the fault of anyone? Not necessarily. Historically, payroll folk tend to process which leaves them limit, limited time to investigate any possible anomalies or to even keep updated with legislation or to keep updated with changes, let alone to investigate whether the system has been configured correctly for these changes or, or whether this new legislation applies to them or do they have an agreement that is still registered and still active even though the law has changed their agreement still stands. Not necessarily given the time to investigate and value the organisation as opposed to just processing. Yeah, right. It's funny, we were talking about these sort of underpayments and other problems in the office the other day and I was saying how frustrating I find it when employers say that their payroll system has it covered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and while the, the payroll system does the tax and the accruals and it can probably be very, you know, relied upon to do those things, the real issues are actually with the data before it even gets into the payroll system, right? And, and one of our colleagues even asked, you know, we said, when was the last time you saw a headline saying someone wasn't taxed correctly? So it's it's really not about what happens in the payroll system. It's everything that happens before that. You know, like interpreting the actual industrial agreement seems to be, uh, you know, a key to payroll compliance, whether it's an EBA, an individual contract, a modern award, and really important to understand how these work together. I know you've taught me a lot about how they, they work together. What advice could, would you give employers and payroll professionals to help them ensure that their awards and other industrial agreements are being applied correctly? First and foremost, there must be time allocated to investigate this. In payroll, it's not just about the processing. And, I mean, yes, it's extremely important to pay people accurately, accurately on time. But if you don't invest the time to ensure that it's accurate, there's going to be severe consequences in the long run. Now, I often use this as an example. I am extremely challenged when it comes to, say, motor vehicle, and not just the driving aspect, but how a motor vehicle would even work. So whilst I may have a vehicle and it comes with a manual and it says these are the warning signs and what these warning signs mean, or there's something, there's noise coming out of thing under the bonnet, just by reading a book, which is the same as reading possibly the Fair Work website or the ATO website, I'm not going to be able to determine what the issue is, let alone fix it. So whilst the information may be available, there, there needs to be other resources to assist people or to assist employers in ensuring that their payroll is accurate. And those resources are things like organisations, I guess, like ours. There are training organisations that permit you to do this. You also need that takes time. If you you need to have the time to invest in these additional resources, 
me simply reading the manual that came with the car is not going to make me a mechanic. Yeah, right. It's really interesting, you know, the thing that I talk about a lot is is a piece of work you did years ago for a, a, a charity, really great charity that run respite homes in Sydney. And um, not a huge, not a huge organisation, I think they had 400 employees. But um, the HR director, the new HR director, um, was a bit concerned about the payroll function. So you went in there and spent a, spent a couple of days and then and sort of wrote the report and quantified some issues that you found. And I remember you saying that, you know, just one small issue, which was just about how they were paying their part-timers on the weekends, just with there being a very small inaccuracy in how that they made those payments, caused that organisation to be overpaying their part-timers over half a million dollars a year. And I remember the CFO said that very next payroll after that issue had been identified, he could see the difference. Um, and obviously, you know, at half a million dollars a year, you can you can fund quite a few staff in a respite home. And, you know, there's certainly better things that a, a you know, local Australian charity can do with half a million dollars a year. And I think that's part of the reason I love what we do together is, you know, there's often overpayments, not just underpayments. I mean, underpayments will generally uh, be made aware to the to the to the employer, but not necessarily overpayment. So it's not it, there's sort of a, a, a it swings and roundabouts. You know, you want to know about that you're, you're not overpaying people as well if you have got particularly people on a you know on agreements that have been interpreted incorrectly. Oh, of course. And the other problem with that is, whilst you I might identify the overpayment, it's also then how the employer deals with this particular piece of knowledge. So whilst we, I have done a number of audits, there are some employers who have taken the, you know, taken the line that, okay, we are going to cease these overpayments, whether it's paying superannuation on overtime or whether it's paying overtime when it should be ordinary rate of pay and those sort of things. Some employers have taken the stance, that's it, we're going to stop this, but other employers have basically said that, oh, well, that's a, it's a legacy payment now and we're going to continue to pay it. The problem that happen, that, that will happen then is when new staff come on board and they're paid under different terms and conditions to existing staff, causes a bit of a disparity and, and a bit of disgruntlement between employees because whilst we know that employees shouldn't be comparing pay slips, they do it. And, you'll find, and I have found that in one particular organisation where they kept this legacy payment, it caused more problems than having ceased the payment and paid them accurately. So these overpayments are just as big a nightmare as the underpayment. Yeah, right. And a lot of employers are overpaying super. What happens when, when you do that? Can you claw it back or should you claw it back or is it even possible to do that? Can you claw it back? There are avenues, yes. You would... Uh, contact the phone and ask for um, a refund. I have had experience with one particular organisation. It was an educational facility, a rather well-known university, that had an issue with overpayments to superannuation. And for those who are doing payroll, superannuation can be paid to the default fund, which is the employer's default fund. It can be paid to the employee's choice of fund or it can be paid to a self-managed fund. Now, they had to recoup a substantial amount of overpaid super. Getting it back from the default fund was not too much of an issue. 
Stripping it back from the employee's choice fund required the employer to make contact with the employee and sign declarations so that the employee acknowledged and accepted that the um, super will be recouped by the employer. Some chose not to sign that document and that declaration, in which case they kept their super. When it came to the self-managed funds, or the the trustees or whoever it was that were, were responsible for issuing the refunds charged the education facility an administration fee that was equal to the value of the refund, so there was no point in recouping it. You're no. kidding me. Wow. I'm, I mean, self-managed super funds would be so difficult, right? What happens if you're a self-managed super fund and you've invested in property and so it's not like you can just cash out some, you know, some funds or yeah, something. Yeah, and I, I, mean, suspect, I suspect that's why it came with such an exorbitant administra- administration fee. Yeah, right. I mean, these are the things that, you know, when, when organisations think payroll is just easy and there's a magic button, these are the things. It's the, it's the 10 or 20% of what we actually do that causes 100% of the complexities. Correct, correct. And and whilst an organisation might be 99% compliant, that 1% of area of non-compliance will negate all the great efforts of the 99% that they were compliant with. It will cause that much of a headache that the whole payroll may as well have been wrong. It's funny because I, I was I've been working with a, an employer, a, a global employer, recently, and uh, just to have a look at um, their payroll system and, and compliance around it. And one of the things that, that they're pretty good, but one of the things that they've been doing is un, is not paying superannuation on leave loading when they should have been in their particular circumstance. Um, whilst it's really a very small, it's not a big organisation and it's a very small amount, you know, superannuation on leave loading. Um, by the time you add up all the, the the penalties and fees and admin charges and that they're going to have to pay, it's by far more than the superannuation underpayments. And, of course, it's none of it's deductible anymore. So it actually, a very immaterial problem can be material in the end. Very much so, very much so. Those admin... What about... Those admin... No, that, that's fine. Funny that you should say... Um, about superannuation on leave loading because I actually sent out a members an additional breaking news members update today and the, uh, the ATO have obviously bomb, bombarded with this same question that I have in the past two years it will undoubtedly be the most common question I have received in the last two years is superannuation payable on leave loading and Okay, so you yourself have asked me that same question a number of times. I have. That's why I knew that. I was probably asking on behalf of this client, to be honest. Uh, That question has been asked by every member, even people in training. When I conduct the training, it still is asked at year-end seminars. It is the most asked question. And I suspect the ATO have been bombarded with that question so much that they finally released a a statement on their website with respect to superannuation on leave loading and whether it is applicable or not. And they have issued some advice on how to go about determining whether it is or not and what evidence you need to supply. They've also indicated that (laughs) due to the, um, I can't remember the exact words, um, but due to the fact that this piece of, this clause in the legislation is subject to interpretation, what evidence may be required, 
and whether it's the employer believes that the evidence will suffice uh, to make the um, leave loading not payable or whether it doesn't suffice is subject to interpretation. So what the ATO have said is that historically, if you have, as an employer, have self-assessed yourself that um, leave loading wasn't superable in previous quarters and it was released today, previous quarters, so anything before 31st of December 2018, we're not going to worry about the SG charge statement when it comes to that. Going forward from this particular quarter, you need to self-assess whether your leave loading is superable or not, and you need to provide provide evidence. They've given you a couple of examples of what evidence you can provide. Going forward, we're going to take this compliance approach that your evidence needs to be satisfactory, otherwise you will be liable for the SG charge statement and underpayments from this quarter forward, so from the 1st of January forward. So that was released yesterday um, to this morning on the ATO website. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's really interesting about that is, is this, would it be the case that you could have different, you could have a whole heap of employees doing different things uh, under different awards and um, some might just be on salary, whatever, and they get leave loading. A lot of employers I see pay leave loading um, when they wouldn't traditionally have been expected to do that, um, but they do anyway. You might have a situation where some employees have super payable on leave loading and some don't, and so you'd have to provide evidence for the ones that don't, right? Yeah. It's not a blanket well, rule they're, they're, for all your employees. Uh, with, the, with what they have released, and I do believe that they use the com- the word complexity in this situation. Mm-hmm. I think what they have released is that they've indicated that you can't you can't. Um, rely on your historical practices and the evidence. Okay, so all this stems from is that the, the reason um, leave loading was initially introduced was that it was to compensate the employee for the loss of a notional loss of opportunity to perform overtime whilst they were absent on annual leave. So as a very simple example, I worked in retail and back in the day when we only had Thursday night trading, I would work Monday to Friday my 38 hours, but every Thursday I would do three hours of overtime due to late night trading. So if I took annual leave on a Thursday and I received leave loading, that leave loading is to compensate me for the loss of opportunity to perform those three hours of overtime on a Thursday night. So that was the traditional, that was the original reason that the, um, the unions went into bat for leave loading. I think it started in the meat industry in the 70s. So eventually, and it was incorporated in a lot of awards and it used to state that you will receive leave loading to compensate you for not being able to do overtime while you're absent on annual leave. All those clauses have been removed. So you can't rely on your industrial instrument now as evidence that leave loading is not superable because it relates to overtime. I think what the ATO have said is along the line, something along the lines of if you have a company policy that says, hey, we're going to pay leave loading in accordance with our industrial instrument and that leave loading is to compensate you for the notional loss of op- uh, opportunity to perform overtime, it will suffice as evidence. So I think they've taken a very much a blanket approach and said this is all too hard. Pick and choose who is and yeah, who right. isn't who can and who cannot super. So we'll just leave, we'll push it back onto the employers and we'll tell them they might want to put in a policy. Yeah, that was, right. As I well, said, that was released today and that would have to have come from, I mean, they've even indicated the complexity of that particular statement in the ruling SGR 2009 forward slash two. It's too hard mm. to provide evidence. Yeah. Speaking of crazy laws, um, 
talk me through Victoria's long service leave, the the changes that were recently made last year, and and what that means for employers with with a new and um, legacy or new and sort of continuing employees in in, in uh, Victoria. Oh, okay. What, what I mean is, what I mean is, new new employee. Talk me through what that means for um, employers with uh, long-standing employees and new employees in Victoria. Well, you've got you've got the HR side of things, and you've got the accounting side of things. So we'll start with the accounting side of things. The balance sheet might look a little bit different when it comes to employee liabilities now, because under the new legislation, the employees can take their long service leave now seven years when they were allowed to take it at, uh, until 10 years service before. It shouldn't be too bad because whilst they weren't allowed to take it until 10 years, service had been completed in your service, on termination of employment, they would have received it had they at least completed at least seven years. It's more... Yeah, oh, it's more now from the HR side of things so and workforce planning. So you may have planned that you'd have X amount of staff at one particular time in this department. Now they're all coming up to seven years and they might all want to take their long service leave or a couple may be coming up and you hadn't planned for them being absent for that period of time. So it's more on workforce planning. There's other – there's – not inconsistencies, but there's what has been deemed unfair for probably women in the past that have taken a period of absence to parental leave. The past, it did not count. In the present, it does count. So effective the 1st of November, employee taking a period of, unpa- of parental leave, a period of 12 months will count towards service. So I may have started on the same day as someone else and on the, I'll go till the end of the year. On the on the 30th of November this year of 2019, we both have the same length of service and both of us have taken a year of parental leave. I took mine back in 2015. My colleague took theirs from November the 1st, 2018 to November the 1st, 2019. Effectively, they have one more year continuous service than I do. So there's employees that see that as a bit as a bit unfair, I guess. And also, um, that's going to, because of the rules, that's going to be, depending on when you took your parental leave, that could also change the average that you've earned in the last five uh, years, 100%, right? yes. And that was a, that was another piece of um, legislation that changed. It had, uh, with most um, long service leave legislation, you're, when you take your long service leave, you are paid at your ordinary rate of pay. And that's great if you've been full-time since day dot. That's easy to calculate. But if you've had a change in work pattern or you've had periods of absence or gone from casual to full-time or full-time to casual or part-time and changing work patterns, Victoria now used to work on the last 12 months or the last five years. Now they've um, introduced a third calculation and it's the weekly rate of pay. Is the greater hours of the following three: your um, last twelve months, your last five years, or the entire course of employment? Entire course of employment, oh, yeah. Moses. It's not just Victoria because that also applies in WA and Queensland. I don't know any employer that has the same piece of software and records that they had from fifteen years ago. Most employers <laughs> would not have that data. That so that makes it a little bit difficult. 
you know, I couldn't. I'm I'm currently conducting an audit, and they've had the new payroll system available for two years now. They don't have historical hours. They have total hours for a period of here and a period of there, but those hours may consist of overtime hours. So they don't have historical data as to what employee worked in that particular year because their system is no the, the previous system is a no longer supported or b not even accessible. Oh yeah, what a nightmare! This is why I'm glad that I actually don't. I mean, I'm actually not in payroll like processing payroll full time. That would I don't know how that works. Hey, look, we're, we're seeing a, a new generation of payroll professionals develop in Australia. They've got, you know, great expertise in technology. They, you know, they want to eliminate payroll processes, automate low-value uh, ones, and, and are really smart about the way that they, they integrate complex payroll issues into a process. What advice would you have for up-and-coming payroll professionals who want to secure a long-term career in payroll? Well, the, those those qualities you just mentioned are absolutely essential for a long-term career in payroll. We need to lose that mentality that it's just the press of a button, that people just fall into payroll. Uh, oh, you, did, you did accounts payable. Well, you paid creditors so you can pay people. They're very different very, very different, require a very different skill set. So what, what advice would I give them? If you have those, if you do, if you do not like to read legislation, if you do not, if you are not IT savvy, if you do not like numbers, I suggest a change of profession because they have three key requirements. So IT, streamlining, it's not just processing anymore. It needs to be value added. It do, it's not just a back office type role anymore. It, it, it needs to add value. I, I, I You've almost got to be sort of have analytics and diagnostic skills as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I, I don't know. It, it's not. It's not the... It's not necessarily the candidates, the payroll candidates. It's the employer's mindset. Employers need to be educated. Those people sitting in that office over there or in the open plan or whatever that you think are just pressing a button and data and keying in data, not necessarily payroll. They're data entry officers, and a lot of people can enter data. A payroll, a, a, a payroll professional would need to understand the legislation, would under, need to understand the, the, what their payroll software is capable of doing. I see so much software that is used just to its limited potential. It's not taken full advantage of. There's a lot of processes still that are being done manually. As I said, that's possibly because maybe their candidate doesn't hold the correct skill set or because of time constraints that they don't have time to investigate all these other streamlining options mm-hmm. yes you, you, you it's yeah, more right. the, it's not necessarily the candidates the more the employer that needs to be educated yeah right I think I 100% agree on that I mean if you had a magic wand what's the one piece of um of payroll legislation that you'd change or eliminate <laughs> um <laughs> uh, I know you've probably got a long list well, uh, <laughs> Oh, that's that one's really hard. Me personally, not too much. I think from the volume of queries I receive, it would be long service leave. Yeah, right. And, and would, would they eliminate it? No. I mean, we are the only country that has that um, scheme. 
there are companies overseas. Uh, sorry, there are countries overseas that have rewards for length of service, but it's, it's not a, an official long service leave scheme. And because we have eight different states and territories, each with their own legislation, it's very hard for certainly a multi-jurisdictional employer to streamline that process. There is no, there is not, there's no software I've ever come across that can accommodate our long service leave provisions. And that's possibly why I would eliminate it. Not because it's that complex, it's because it's it's impossible to configure into any piece of software. Mm, and keep those, uh, you know, the balances in the, in the balance sheet correct. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a crazy one. It, wasn't, it was first um, introduced, wasn't it, because we had such, you know, we had a lot of European immigration in Australia and it took two months to actually go back to Europe and visit your family and come back again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it was also a, a, a reward for your loyalty for staying with the one employer. Yeah. Yes, it did take a long time to go back on a boat and come back to work. And ironically, the other reason was uh, is to, which, I mean, you have to admit, you've been with an organisation for 10 years, undoubtedly you get a little bit stale. The whole idea is to take an extended break and come back refreshed. And ironically, the state that introduced it being South Australia is one of the first states that allows you to cash it out, which defeats the purpose of its implementation. Oh, that's so funny because I always ask you about cashing out long service, even you always tell me I can't do it. Oh, no, not here in New South Wales you can't, no. But yeah. in South Australia and WA you can. Oh, and, of okay. course, if you have a um, an agreement that was before Fair Work that it provides for it, yes. Right, okay. Well, well, there's all different, yeah, there's all different rules and regulations when it comes to um, enterprise bargaining or EAs, enterprise agreements and specific, you know, EAs or EBAs, the terms and conditions of long service leave in pre, pre-modern award EAs may allow you to cash it out. Right. I mean, again, it's like everything in payroll, isn't it? There isn't a straight answer generally. No, and I think that's not. the that's the thing I've learned from you, Maria, is that, um, you know, it's very rare that, that uh, you know, that, that uh, <laughs> there is a, a yes or no or a straight answer. Um, well, Maria, it's always good to be talking payroll with you. I'm so grateful to have met you almost eight years ago now, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what the next eight and beyond look like in the world of payroll. Oh, ditto. Absolutely ditto. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Bye. Hi, this is Tracy. I hope you enjoyed that last episode of Talking Payroll. If you've got any comments or questions, please email them to us at podcast at ostpayroll.com.au. And look, if there's anyone that you'd love to hear on this podcast or someone that you think that I just have to interview, and maybe that's even you, let us know by emailing podcast at austpayroll.com.au. That's podcast at austpayroll.com.au. I'm really looking forward to having you listen again next time I'm talking payroll.